Once you enter this family, there's no getting out. This family comes before everything else. Everything. Before your wife and your children and your mother and your father. It's a thing of honor. You stay within the family. Welcome to episode two of our four-part series on The Sopranos, in which we are discussing themes of fathers and masculinity and femininity and families on The Sopranos. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier. We have our special guests, New York Magazine TV critic Matt Zoller-Seitz and Rolling Stone TV critic Alan Seppenwall, who were recorded in a separate interview. We will be incorporating their quotes into this throughout. First, some housekeeping that we want to address from the last episode. That's correct. When I was introducing uh, Matt Zoller-Seitz and his bio, I inadvertently called Roger Ebert, Robert Ebert. I hope everybody knows that it's RogerEbert.com, and that's one of Matt Zoller-Seitz's many illustrious bio points. But you know what? People make mistakes, and Aaron, we're not here to acknowledge our mistakes, are we? We're here to talk about the mistakes of Tony Soprano. That's correct, Mundo. And so our cold open, you heard Tony and his crew initiating Christopher officially into the mob. He's a captain now. In this episode today, we're going to focus more on seasons three and four and the absolute heart of darkness that is this show. We're going to look more into big F family themes, more about the way the mobsters betray each other, and about the way Tony betrays his little F family, Carmela in particular, with the fall of his marriage, the continuously different ways that he treats AJ and Meadow. There's lots of murder in this episode. And we look into the lies behind the reasons the killers tell themselves why they kill. Tony's hypocrisy around almost everyone in his life, Jackie Jr., Meadow, AJ, Christopher, his ex-girlfriend, Irina, Gloria, his new girlfriend, who we'll get into in a minute, Ralphie, and Carmela. That's a lot of hypocrisy. That's a lot of hypocrisy. This episode really includes all of Dysfunction's greatest hits. Exactly. So just a heads up, our conversation with Alan and Matt is going to pick up around 25 minutes into this episode today because we're going to recap a little bit and bring you all up to date. At the end of season two, Tony discovers that his worst fear has come true. There is a, a break in his mob family with a capital F, and he determines that one of his guys has been working with the FBI and is a rat. That's right. Uh, big pussy. We haven't talked very much about the mob family at all. We've been focusing on Tony's biological and immediate family members. 
specifically uh, the whole reason for the show, which is his mother, Livia. Very early in um, season three, Livia dies. And she dies because the actress who played her, the brilliant Nancy Marchand, dies in real life. She's the only person that could have played that role. She was just channeling David Chase's real-life mother, who the show is truly based on. She was that kind of personality and had that critical effect on David Chase himself and was the impetus for him going into therapy for the first time in the 70s. In the same episode, we see how racist Tony is. It's always implied that they're racist. It comes out in little bits and pieces, but this is like a moment where it's in full view. You see it play out with Meadow's boyfriend. Noah. Noah. Mm-hmm. She brings him home from Columbia and Tony meets them. They're just having like a date night, watching a movie. And Noah is left alone with Tony for a little bit while Meadow runs upstairs to get the Bare Naked Ladies CD. <laughs> and she clearly thinks that they're going to have a nice chat. And Tony immediately doesn't imply it. He's like, you're Black. You're not with my daughter. It's just not happening. Meadow and the boyfriend leave the house and Tony goes inside and opens a cupboard to start making himself something to eat and encounters a box of Uncle Ben's rice and then faints. That's that panic attack response. It's the panic attack response that, oh my God, my daughter is dating a black guy. And Tony having to fathom a world where people do things that have nothing to do with him and that he can't control. Particularly his daughter. And it's what we're going to get into a lot in this episode is the ugly sides of Tony Soprano. The ugliest, yeah. It really doesn't shy away. In fact, it goes so extreme in every direction, particularly in season three, to show like the darkest, darkest sides of humanity, whether that's with violence or racism or sexual assault, the murders of people's daughters. <laughs> You'll hear Matt in particular talk a lot about how that was a turning point. A lot of people stopped watching the show at season three because they couldn't stomach it. Mm -hmm. I found it notable when you see that Livia has died. Carmela receives a call that Livia has been found dead and she just kind of relays that to Tony and he doesn't really have a reaction, <laughs> right? It's kind of uh, surprising. And then there's a rushed funeral that is played for comedy a little bit. Christopher and his girlfriend Adriana come and they're high as fuck. <laughs> and it's kind of glossed over. We're left with this feeling of like, I guess Tony's not really going to give us much here. It's not like he's going to have a, a tearful grief scene. I appreciated that because it felt very true to life, you know? Totally. Life goes on and you have to channel that energy into other things. And perhaps that's why season three goes in such a dark direction. And we see Tony being so horrible, more than we've been shown before. That might be a subtle reason for that. 
So very early on, there's really important episode that we'll talk about a little here. It's the third episode in season three. It's called Fortunate Son. In it, nephew Christopher gets made, which means he gets to the next level and he can't be fucked with. It's definitely like a fraternity kind of ceremony. It's supposed to be a surprise for the guy that's about to be initiated into the club, right? And I thought it was funny that when he goes to the place where he's going to have the ceremony, it's like a shitty den, like a restaurant basement or something. Extremely low rent. Yeah, that's such a good point. There's like something pathetic about it and childish, like a tree house that they're all hanging out in, like circle jerk. Friends forever. <laughs> yeah. Circle jerk forever. We'll play a clip from the dialogue of, from the ceremony. All right, you know why we're here. So if you have any doubts or reservations, now is the time to say so. No one will think any less of you. Because once you enter this family, there's no getting out. This family comes before everything else, everything. Before your wife and your children and your mother and your father. It's a thing of honor. Then God forbid if you get sick or something happens and you can't earn, we'll take care of you, because that's part of it. If you've got a problem, you just got to let somebody know. This man right here, he's like your father. It doesn't matter if it's with somebody here or on the outside. You bring it to him, he'll solve it. You stay within the family. That's Tony and Polly Walnuts talking to Christopher. And Christopher, we'll talk about this much more in, in, in our next episode, but there's a lot of animal imagery throughout this series. And it's no coincidence that we break away from the action to see Christopher notice the crow has landed on the windowsill. And he takes that as kind of a bad omen. And indeed it is. Yeah. Polly had just told Christopher to consider Tony the father and this crow lands. Maybe it's a harbinger of death. Animals and animals maybe representing the afterlife or being like sent from the afterlife come through the entire show up until the very last season. It's true. It's very interesting. So in this episode, Tony has a therapy session with Dr. Melfi and tells the story of the first time that he saw his father commit violence. He accidentally sees his dad chop off this guy's pinky at the butcher shop. They go home. His dad proudly presents like a roast to Livia. Little Tony sees it, but what he notices is that Livia is turned on. Yes. His father grabs Livia's ass in front of the kids. And Tony sees it and basically forever connects meat to violence and sex. Mm -hmm. So Melfi is trying to help him see, um, let's talk about the gabagool, <laughs> the connection between your panic attacks and meat. And she starts telling him about Proust and remembrances of things past. That's why you're short-circuited. Puberty. 
witnessing not only your mother and father's sexuality, but also the violence and blood so closely connected to the food you were about to eat. And also the thought that someday you might be called upon to bring home the bacon, like your father. All this from a slice of gabagool? Kind of like Proust's Madeleines. What? Marcel Proust wrote a seven-volume classic, Remembrance of Things Past. He took a bite of a Madeleine. It's a kind of a tea cookie he used to have when he was a child. And that one bite unleashed a tide of memories of his childhood and ultimately of his entire life. This sounds very gay. I hope you're not saying that. That sounds very gay. That's as deep as Tony's going to go with Dr. Malfi about his panic attacks. So we pivot from that to later in the episode, Tony is having dinner with Jackie Jr., who's about Meadow's age. Jackie is sort of starting a flirtation with Meadow that turns into them dating. He's in college. He's going to Rutgers. He is the nephew of Richie April, who was murdered by Janice. Tony tells this poor kid Richie was, in fact, a rat. He didn't have to say that, but he did. He tries to, like, get another one in, and Jackie's really surprised. But Tony uses it as a way to say, you know, don't get into this life. Your father never wanted that for you. Jackie Jr.'s father died in the last season of, of basically cancer. Your dad and me, you know how close we were? He never wanted this for you. He wanted you to be a doctor. Give me a fucking break. Let me tell you something. Uh, besides the money, which is a shitload of, doctors are very powerful position. I'm no doctor. You know how hard you have to work to get your MD? How many years it takes? I was even thinking maybe osteopathy, but I don't think I have the grades for that even. Well, you're not gonna drop out of Rutgers, are you? No. But those fucking pre-med courses almost killed me. I only did it because my dad was sick. But you should know, he never wanted this life for you. And I'll tell you something, I don't want it for my son either. I think he's being genuine there. He doesn't want him to get involved with violence when he's going to Rutgers for pre-med, which he is at the time. But we soon see that Jackie Jr. does not. <laughs> he goes straight for it and becomes one of Chris's men. Basically, Tony is giving him a stay in school speech. And That's right. It's something that we see in seasons five and six and later in, in seven is... Tony's desire to see his own children break the cycle or hopes that they will. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it also goes back to what we start seeing more and more in Tony's very like Jungian dream sequences that get intertwined throughout this entire series is Tony didn't really have a choice whether he became part of the capital F family. I think Tony was pushed into this life very early on. I think you're right that Tony is genuine in that moment of don't get mixed up in this. Well, because meanwhile, AJ, his bio son, is revealed to be great at JV football. He makes the team. He's got a natural talent. 
there's a scene where a bunch of the dads go to watch their sons like have a I was going to say have a football rehearsal, have a practice or a scrimmage. And whoever directed this episode slows down the men cheering for their sons. So it's like you can see how animalistic they are. And Tony has never been prouder of AJ's because, as we know, we talked about last time, almost making varsity football was like the one thing right that he was never able to do and junior is always like messing with him about it but aj isn't really into football and so it's going to open things up for some problems later um but i just wanted to mention that all of these things are in fortunate son it reminded me of my dad um my late father was like Mr. Touchdown, USA prom king, Mr. Hanson <laughs> in high school, but he didn't want to be any of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, he grew up in Iowa, but he went to boarding school in Minnesota. He told me this once and I was like, what? This explains so much that he was playing a football game and that his parents drove from really far away to watch him play and he was performing so badly that they just left in the middle of the game oh that's crushing (laughs) that really scars i think men in particular boys because we put such an emphasis on if you're a masculine boy you must be good at sports i think even more than girls at least aj's generation at the time Let's transition to the very next episode, which is also infamous, called Employee of the Month. And we're just going to cut to it. In the middle of the episode, Dr. Melfi is leaving a, a session, and she's walking down the stairwell to the parking garage to get her car. And she's brutally beaten and raped by a, just a random rapist. The episode turns out to be one of the most pivotal, I think, in the entire series and important, ultimately. We see Melfi, her life for the first time. She goes to the hospital. Her college-age son, Jason, comes to be with her and her ex-husband. And we see them reacting to her assault taking it very personally, wanting to seek revenge. Also in the episode, we find out really quickly that the rapist, like who the rapist is, and that he's going to get off on a technicality. So all of this information is kind of thrown at you. Elizabeth, you saw this for the first time, and you didn't know that it was coming. Tell me about your experience of seeing it and what's happening, like, in terms of, like, you want retribution and revenge. And I think the idea is that she might tell Tony. Yeah, it was shocking watching it. It truly comes out of nowhere. It was thinking, God, they could never do this. And Matt Nolan talked about that on our last episode. Like, the show would have been culturally canceled in a heartbeat for some of its depictions of violence against women and sexual violence. And for a laundry list of reasons that would have been canceled, racism, et cetera. Right. The police are sort of indifferent. It's kind of going nowhere. And so that felt true to life. For a second as a viewer, you think 
she's going to stick Tony on this guy. She's going to seek revenge. She's going to get Tony to rep this guy up because in a session, Tony sees that something is wrong and something has happened to her. We want her to tell him. She says she's been in a car accident. I have to say also, Tony responds exactly how you would want him to. Like, when he sees her, he becomes James Gandolfini, the charm of him. He's immediately just like, oh, my God, you know, what happened? And he's very protective and paternal, and he tries to go and console her, help her. And basically, you just think the entire episode that she's going to be able to tell him. You want her to. And it ends really powerfully and kind of redeemed the reason for the episode for me, it's the second time Tony is seeing her since the rape for a session, and he's, he notices that she's still not okay. And he puts it to her, you know, like, is there anything I can do? And there's a long pause, and she just looks at him and says, no. And then the screen, it just goes black, and there's no music, and it's credits, and it's very powerful because the word no what it means and then also you just see that is her power that's her only power and she uses it to protect the world because you know if he did know he would go kill whoever she wanted him to kill absolutely yeah. i'm gonna read a quote from david chase from entertainment weekly in 2001 about the no scene if you're raised on a steady diet of Hollywood movies and network television, you start to think, obviously there's going to be some moral accounting here. That's not the way that the world works. It all comes down to why you're watching. If all you want is to see Big Tony Soprano take that guy's head and bang it against the wall like a cantaloupe, the point is, Melfi, despite pain and suffering, made her moral ethical choice, and we should applaud her for it. That's the story. That's the story. And spoiler alert, we never get redemption. There's no closure. You will hear Melfi bring up her rape to her own therapist. But he recovers in silence, as everyone does, you know? A lot of um, women and men and people on all ends of the gender spectrum who walk around with the wounds of sexual assaults with no closure. And because it's such an early episode in the season, it sets the tone for what is to come. An episode called University. Ugh, girl, where to start with the ballad of Tracy, the pregnant stripper? This is the first episode that you really, you know, Silvio, Tony's consigliere, is like right-hand man owns the Bing, the Bada Bing strip club. And it's kind of the first episode, I think, that you actually see any of the strippers have names or any lines with the character of Tracy, who yep. is a young woman who is a dancer at the Bing. And she is Meadow's age, who's a single mom. She kind of confides in Tony Early on in the episode, we see her juxtaposed with Meadow at college. She has braces and she is dating 
Ralphie Cifaretto, who is played by Joey Pants, if you know that actor. It's a fantastic role. Ralphie is without question, like the worst of the worst. <laughs> um, he's so violent. He is taking over for Richie April's route, if you will, his paper route. He has to handle all of his old accounts now that Janice has murdered him. But Ralphie is an extremely horrible person, and he's dating Tracy on the side, and she becomes pregnant with his baby. And he ends up murdering her by just, like, beating the shit out of her when she tells him that she's pregnant outside the bing in the parking lot. He cradles her face in his hands, and he says, Oh, if it's a boy, we can name it after me. If it's a girl, we can name it after you. And she looks happy. And he's like, just kidding and punches her in the face and just keeps punching her until she's dead. <laughs> Shocking. The whole thing was really violent and horrible. Right. We also see Silvio hitting a woman as well. Hitting her and telling her that her shaved twat belongs to him. You know, Matt and Alan talk a lot about in Soprano Sessions and in the interviews with David Chase, David Chase over and over again will be like, these are horrible people. Like, I don't want you to fall in love with Tony Soprano. We didn't want you to think Polly Walnuts was a funny character. And so we had to remind you that these people were monsters. And you really see it in this episode. You really, really see it. Let's hear from Matt and Alan. Matt, you mentioned it was hard to get through season three, which is incredibly violent. I was struck when you're talking to Chase about this and he doesn't remember that the rape of Dr. Melfi and the murder of Tracy are even in the same season. Right. There was a stretch of three episodes there and then another toothpick is in there too, which is the one where crazy Mustang Sally character almost beat the guy to death with a golf club and... Ugh. Then they get Burt Young to kill him, and Burt Young nearly coughs himself to death as, as he's as he's killing this guy. It's right. really like, I mean, it was the kind of thing where I remember there were conversations at the office, Star Ledger, with people saying, I don't know if I can keep watching this show if it's going to be like this every week. I mean, I in the end, obviously, who cares what the order of the episodes was, but it was a lot. I mean, like three weeks in a row of that, I mean... Can you imagine the discourse now? Again, like what Matt was saying, like the show would have been canceled by Twitter for that run of three episodes if it happened today. Well, Alan, was there a, a point of no return? For you? Obviously not no return, but is there a point where Tony becomes irredeemable for you? I'm trying to think now because it, watching it at the time, it feels a little bit like, you know, the frog in the pot, uh, the metaphor, because you're watching him. And he's obviously, he's very charming. He's very charismatic. He's presented as smarter than the other gangsters. And right. at least for the first few episodes, mostly, he's like just barking out orders and not killing anybody. When he finally does kill someone in the famous college episode, it's a guy who is was a wise guy himself and is still dealing drugs. And at one point points a gun at Meadow. So it's sort of like this immersion thing. And it's very easy for me to go back and look at the show now and say, look, obviously he's a monster from the very beginning, like from the very first episode, when you see him running down Michael Gaston, the guy who owes them the money, and he like literally drives Christopher's car into him and like orders this guy to like set up the phony MRI scam. Even from then, this is just a sociopath. 
Right. But because it takes you a while to get there, and I'm not sure like that there was a particular moment in watching the show, especially because I was not covering it day to day in those first three seasons where the light bulb clicked off for me. But it's, mm. I mean, it's, it's there from the jump. I don't really think of movies and television or novels or songs or anything in those terms. I really don't. I mean, I have, I have a, a, a sort of an internal compass where like I have certain things that I, I don't like to watch, you know, like I have certain triggers, like anything with sexual assault or child abuse in it is a little, is a rough one for me. Right. Right. A rough one for me for, you know, personal, like sort of biographical reasons. Like I've been up close with that kind of stuff when I was younger and I don't want to when it shows up and I'm not prepared for it, like I hear people saying trigger warnings, we're such a bunch of babies. And I'm like, no, I would like to know if there's a, a kid being beaten in this story. So yeah. I just decide not to watch it. You know what I'm saying? But that being said, I never look at a character in terms of, is it okay to like them? Are right. they movable? Like, I just don't, I guess I'm just not wired that way. Like I think of them as a case study, I guess. And I think I probably was a little bit this way, even before I got into therapy and I started reading primary sources so that I could understand, like I wanted to go deeper. I knew that important work was being done in that room to help me understand myself better. And I wanted to go beyond the superficial. So I started trying to read. I started seriously reading Freud at that point. That was the mm. first one. I see characters more in terms of just like, almost like a therapist might. Like what makes this person tick? What do they tell me that they're about versus what I think they're actually about? You know, because mm -hmm. the stories that we tell about ourselves are always a little bit self-serving. We yes. leave things out and we shade things to make ourselves a hero. Like one of my favorite things to do in New York, because it's such a pedestrian city, is I kind of eavesdrop when I'm walking down the street and I listen for stray bits of dialogue that I hear. And, and I've noticed that when people are on a, a cell phone in New York, nine times out of 10, they're telling a narrative about themselves and they're the hero. And <laughs> always it's about like, and that I was at work and and this, this led to me this, and then I told them this, and it's always about how <laughs> they told them off and how everybody at the, everybody at the office is stupid except for them and they <laughs> the boss and their husband is an idiot. Their wife is an idiot. Their children don't appreciate them. You know, nobody sees how great I am. That seems to be the subtext of a lot of these things. And sure. it's like, you all realize you're all having the same conversation. And I think the Sopranos gets that. On rewatches, one of the things I appreciated, two things. One was the way that something will happen and we have a kind of an objective view of what happened. And then the character will talk about it later. And it's just a straight up lie about what happened. <laughs> You're we, right. And that uh, the episode where Tracy dies, you remember uh, uh, Tony subsequently describes that to Melty as a work-related accident. Right. Like she lost a thumbnail in a machine that makes ashtrays or something. And uh, that happens all through the show. This is all cast against Meadow going to Columbia University and Noah, who you see complaining about having to wear a condom and essentially out of nowhere breaking up with her because she's too annoying fucking with his GPA. So he dumps her. And there's also a sad storyline where Meadow's college roommate, Caitlin, is like having a nervous breakdown. Right. And she's this sort of fish out of water girl who comes to New York City and she's drinking a lot and she's probably homesick and she's lived a very sheltered life. 
She's completely overwhelmed essentially by the world. It's like she just opened her eyes and woke up and was like, oh my God, people are horrible and the world is a horrible place. And you see Meadow telling her, you know, you got to snap out of this, Caitlin. It's interesting. Yeah, Matt and Alan point this out in the book too about Caitlin being like a truth teller. And when I saw it originally, I hated her and I totally read it as like, Ugh, we've all had these pain in the ass roommates in college or why was that girl freshman year kind of thing? Because it's a very like white girls with problems, privileged look at the world. It's like, oh, I'm sorry. Are you finding out about sad things for the first time? I was callous as a viewer. And frankly, until I read the book, and talk to you about it was the first time I had any sympathy for the Caitlin character. I just saw her as a comedic um, foil. Yeah, she totally is. Essentially what you're looking at in this episode is three girls. Tracy is also, I think, their age. So you have Tracy, who is stuck in the world of sex work and poverty, and sex work is not portrayed on this show in a way that is empowering for the dancers at the bank. It's the brutality and the degradation of the sex work because we see so much sex work throughout the series and strippers in the background and all of that stuff. But this is an episode where we learn that in order to get into the back room, the champagne room, you have to blow the bouncer and then give him a cut. We see Tracy being double teamed, if you will, before her own brutal murder. It's a very upsetting, in general, episode to watch, I think, for everyone, not just women. Let's hear from Matt and Alan. I never turned against Tony in that way, but I do think that my attitude about him changed after university. Mm. Which was a, an episode where he he himself was not personally responsible for the act of violence in that episode, but he he should have seen it coming, and we show him as being complicit in this network of exploitation that allows it to happen. And this is when Ralphie murders Tracy, his pregnant girlfriend. And when I watched it again recently, if you know, for the book. It made me think of all the stuff that was happening and, you know, the way that so many guys frame things in, in the Me Too era where they say, you know, as the father of daughters. <laughs> right. A hundred percent. But here's a case where Tony is literally, I and mean, the show equates the two. It visually frames shots so that you think of Tracy as being like Meadow. Right. And here's this girl who is in front of him. I mean, she is practically, she's like 19 or something. Yep. And she's standing in front of him, basically asking for a kind of a paternal uh, protection. Yeah. Like she wants a lifeline and he doesn't give it to her. He dehumanizes her because she's an employee and he doesn't want to get involved. And like, so here's here's somebody who is basically functionally a daughter in this place, and and the father is indifferent to her, and she dies. Mm-hmm. And right. I, th- I think actually I had a two year old daughter at the time, mm-hmm. and I think that sparked some really kind of uh, alarmed thoughts for me. I was thinking like not a not for myself necessarily, but just like oh my god, this is a world where these guys don't see these women as being full human beings, right? Like you walk through that door and you're not a full human being. Like they're misogynistic. There's a trace of misogyny in everything they do. Like even when Tony's talking to Carmela, you see it. 
but it's a whole different deal when they're in this space. Yeah, that whole, it's heartbreaking. She brings him like a banana bread or she brings him something and he he chides her for that. And you see how badly she wants his approval. There's so much in that episode. I mean, the fact that, you know, she has braces and a boob job and you know that Tony has paid for those things. You know, she's, they called them the girls. She's a good kid. You know, being women, we feel that constantly. Like we're always aware there's this side of us and then, then there's the daughter or the wife side of us in the world. But yeah, that was the breaking point for me too. Just the brutality. And then the even still, that's the first time we see him rough somebody up yep. mm-hmm. uh, or violence against women in particular. And it just, a part of me died a little bit. I was yeah. like, this is the point of no return because I'm not going to stop watching. Yeah, It's just so well crafted, the juxtaposition of sweet meadow, whatever you need, baby, with this is a piece of trash that I momentarily briefly feel sorry about, but only because she's a good earner. It also also indicts the specific type of viewer who would be recapping The Sopranos. You know, by juxtaposing what's going on at the strip club with what's going on with Meadow at college, it's like, it's a physically nonviolent middle-class version of what's happening at the bank. Yeah. You know, and like, that was another thing that I think made people uncomfortable. This is something Alan and I have talked about a lot, which is I, what I found really interesting was in season one, I heard almost nothing from people who watched the show about how they were uncomfortable with the violence. They only started to become uncomfortable with the violence when the show shifted gears and started to show how the mob culture affected the quote-unquote respectable society. Mm -hmm. At the beginning of season two, you see that Tony's involved in a carjacking ring and uh, a family's car gets stolen in New York and they're just an ordinary family. It's probably out for night on the town. Right. And and then, you know, that's the episode. Alan, isn't that the, that's the season where they bust out the guy who owns the sporting goods store. Davis Scatino, yeah. Mm. People were so upset at the office of the Star Ledger. They were really mad about that episode. I'm like, how many, like, how many people have been violently murdered on the show by this point? And you're upset because this guy lost a sporting goods store. And the obvious answer is because yeah. they couldn't imagine being a gangster who was involved in gangsterism who got killed for being a gangster. But they could very easily see losing their business. Mm-hmm. That Good point. And, it, and it's just like, you know, once again, how many times have we seen this in politics, in yeah. political culture, where... People only care about an issue when it affects them. I think women are used in university or these three young women to sort of show an array of how we do not listen to women, period. That's the brilliance of the writing. Chase presents this buffet of characters. By characters, I mean different personalities. One of the things that struck me about Caitlin's character is that she has In addition to depression, a number of ticks, you know, she like pulls out her hair. And so it reminded me that this show really introduced our culture, I think, to not just the concept of therapy and psychoanalysis, but frankly, what we call the DSM-5, which was then the DSM-4. But that is the big Bible of all psychiatric disorders. And it's just fascinating because, Busy, can you tell the audience how you came to 
Matt and Alan's book or The Sopranos? I came to The Sopranos sessions from my own therapist recommending it to me and which got us talking to Matt and Alan about their experiences with therapy. Were either of you or both of you in therapy when you started watching The Sopranos? I was. Uh, no, actually, no, I wasn't. Jesus Christ. Um, I was later. Yeah. I was later. I was always interested in in uh, kind of psychoanalytic concepts, like in the right. abstract, but I didn't really know anything about it. It wasn't until, you know, 2006, my wife died unexpectedly in 2006, and I went into therapy, and that was during the first half of season six. Wow. Yeah. And I actually was recapping the show and I gave it to a friend of mine to finish. I didn't write anything for a couple of months. And then when the final season came on, I had been in therapy for a year. And you can tell, if you go back and read those recaps, you can tell like, wow, the approach and the style of this guy's writing about this show has completely changed. And that was because of the therapy. I didn't know any of this stuff, you know, and I felt like, it's incredible. You know, wow, if I, you know, imagine. In fact, I did read people who were looking at it from a therapeutic standpoint, like Slate had an entire thing where they just looked at it through the lens of psychoanalysis. And they had, I believe, more than one therapist was contributing to that. And I read that and I thought it was really interesting, but I didn't, I didn't personally know anything about that. Did Chase consult actual psychotherapists or was he just going off of his own knowledge well i mean he had a therapist who he used as the model for dr melfi and I, right. I believe he told us when we interviewed him for the soprano sessions that at least early on he would go to her for ideas is that right matt well he had been in therapy he didn't like ask her for ideas but being in therapy gave him ideas that's and it yeah yeah he had a whole room full of writers he had you know people like Terrence Winter and Robin Green and Mitchell Burgess and they, but they were, a lot of them were in therapy. It's a room full of Hollywood writers. I mean, you know, yeah. and I'm sure the actors of like half the actors are probably in therapy. I, you know, I had a conversation with Corey Stoll, uh, who plays Uncle Junior in the, in Many Saints of Newark. And uh, half of my conversation with Corey Stoll was about therapy. Was right. Black. And Lorraine, Lorraine Bracco, who plays Dr. Melfi, wrote a book about being on the couch, you know, her therapy. Yeah. It was great. And my own therapist loves the show. I talk about the show with my therapist uh, a lot. Dan and Mad Men, which is by one of the producers. The Soprano Sessions was recommended to me by my therapist, whose own therapist recommended <laughs> it to her. <laughs> wow. We got the, the seal and approval. Yeah. We've done a lot of exploration of The Sopranos and Mad Men. My own father died. Uh, he died three years ago. Mm. Um, mm and was a newspaper man, but died of alcoholism and had a lot of demons. And Sopranos and Mad Men has been a great way to look at that for me. And I relate a lot to Sally and Meadow and AJ in that sense. Elizabeth, we should set up Carm more. We haven't mentioned her in a while, and we should say that Carmela is having a lot of problems this season and in season four, she realizes that there's no financial security for her. It's not like mobsters have IRAs. <laughs> and they certainly do not discuss their investments, which is really just cash that he hides in different places in the house. And she doesn't know. She yeah. has no financial security because she's never had a job. She doesn't trust Tony. And she knows he has many girlfriends. And 
she goes through that existential crisis. I think a lot of women of her generation did in their marriages where they're like, what the heck is going to happen when he dies? And they go to Melfi together for a kind of like couples therapy session. And as is the case in real life, couples therapists can't treat both spouses. Melfi um, refers her to this therapist uh, who's very direct with her. I won't take your money. That's a new one. You must trust your initial impulse and consider leaving him. You'll never be able to feel good about yourself. You'll never be able to quell the feelings of guilt and shame that you talked about. As long as you're his accomplice. You're wrong about the accomplice part, though. You sure? All I did was make sure he's got clean clothes in his closet and dinner on his table. So a neighbor would be a more accurate job description for you than an accomplice. My apologies. So, you think I need to uh, define my boundaries more clearly? Keep a certain distance, not internalize my... What did I just say? Leave him. Take only the children, what's left of them, and go. My priest said I should try and work with him, help him to be a better man. How's that going? So good. We do see her confide in others about the life and her predicament, like meaning she knows all this stuff's going on and she stays and protects the lie of being like a normal family and denying that she's given up herself and put her children in danger, that she's complicit in every way. Right. And she also has to be complicit. She's a stay-at-home mother. And in the coming episodes, you see how this starts chipping away at their marriage, this realization. She sees Pussy post being offed for being a snitch. She sees his wife handing out samples at the grocery store, free samples. Yes, she could leave Tony, but it would come at a huge expense. I would have to get a lawyer find an apartment, arrange for child support. You're not listening. I'm not charging you because I won't take blood money. You can't either. One thing you can never say, that you haven't been told. I see. You're right, I see. You can never say you didn't know. It's interesting because one wonders if Melfi knew of course, she knew that he was going to be that direct with her. She wanted Clark to get a second opinion from someone who was going to straight up say, you're complicit and you need to get out. Melfi couldn't say that much to Carmen in her session with Tony. In our audio with Matt and Alan, Matt says, I always imagine that therapist is about to retire. <laughs> oh, let's play that. <laughs> the other thing I think is interesting is there's a lot of different therapists on the show. Melfi, I think, actually is a good therapist. I know there's some argument about that. that oh, I think too, she is. She's yeah. too interventionist or too moralist or something. But I think doing extraordinary work, considering that she's treating a psychopathic gangster. Um, <laughs> right. Sometimes you have to be a little more explicit. She's an explorer. Mm-hmm. She's going to this terrain that like, a lot of therapists would never even go to a place that she goes to. I think she's very brave. But there's also these other therapists, too, like you see... 
you know, at various points, Carmela sees a therapist and she also sees multiple clergy people who kind of serve the same function. You even see, you know, Meadow goes, AJ goes, Melfi. Janice goes to one who is like the, the most ideal Janice therapist because she is <laughs> buys every little bit of Janice's bullshit and is like, yes, Janice, you are the hero of your story. <laughs> There's a Get therapist for everyone. It's true. Yeah. Perfect. It's true. Yeah. And then there's the therapist in the, one of my very favorite episodes, Second Opinion, the one that Carmela goes to. I always imagine that he's about to retire. And that's why he talks to her that way. Because therapists really are not supposed to talk to people that way. No. And he won't take her money. Yeah. What are, you, what are you talking about all this? Just the portrayal of therapy and particularly Melfi. What do we think about it? Yeah. I mean, I thought that she was a hero. I was kind of surprised when she says, well, she's a little complicit in a way. Like she's not this totally innocent character. Um, she goes against her better judgment because the idea is that if the therapist thinks that crime is being committed, you must break protocol and tell the cops and she never does that. I always just really saw it through her eyes because I wanted to get him to grow a little bit. And I think in the end, she finally does realize, holy shit, I think that I've just helped him become a better sociopath or just a better, more effective criminal. And mm -hmm. that's not what I'm in it for. Mm -hmm. But back to Carm, I, I really feel for Carmela. You do see her after this really pushing Tony to set up some sort of life for them just in case something happens to sign a trust, to meet with a financial planner. And Tony mm -hmm. is very reluctant to do it. Yeah, he you says, know. you'll be taken care of. Don't worry about it. And she's seen how that's worked out for her friend. It reminds me of my mom because she didn't have a college education. My dad was the primary breadwinner. We were in a very evangelical household. So it was like the double whammy of uneducated, unemployed mom who's a stay-at-home homemaker. That's what they called it. And when I was a teenager, I think I was 16, my mom started taking college classes and getting like a job at, at JCPenney just to like dip her toe in autonomy. And it directly led to our parents' divorce because she, you know, got her own for the first time. She yeah. got to grow up. Carmela starts getting interested in studying to become a real estate agent because I think what this therapist says to her really rattles her. Meadow even sees a therapist in season four, right after Jackie Jr., her boyfriend, is killed. Yeah, so clearly Jackie Jr. went into the mob, even though Tony warns him not to. He's a real dum-dum. And so by the end of season three, like he and Meadow are dating. You see he's kind of a douche. But she cares about him. They grew up together. He gets clipped. That's all that matters. Yeah, Jackie Jr. flies way too close to the sun and does something really stupid and is killed for that. And Tony is okay with that. His own daughter's boyfriend. And also the son of Ralphie's girlfriend, Rosalie. And a kid that he's known for a long time and that he sort of, I think, promised to take under his own wing. Mm hmm. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting about Jackie Jr. is that 
in this season, we're seeing all the ugly sides of Tony. One of Tony's most chilling qualities is the ability to believe a lie. And again, it has shades of Don Draper to it. Like when Don tells Peggy, it'll shock you how much it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Tony, I think at times will gladly keep repeating the lie that someone that he brutally killed just disappeared and went into the witness protection program. And and also his inability to see his own hypocrisy. And there's a scene where he sees Jackie Jr. in the Bada Bing getting a lap dance while right. he's supposed to be dating his daughter. And Tony, you know, pulls him into the men's room and just screams at him. You fucking pussy piece of shit. All I did was tell your own man what a good kid you are. And all you do is fucking hurt me. So stupid. It's so hypocritical. Just the juxtaposition of family with a capital F and family with a lowercase f, like his own confusion around that shit. It's a mess. And at the end, there's a memorial service for Jackie Jr. And Meadow, she's angry. She like storms out like, this is bullshit. But she realizes that it's bullshit because she kind of knows in her heart what happened to this guy. Like maybe she won't let herself know that it was really her dad could have saved him. She doesn't have the full awakening of this is bullshit in the way that later we see AJ or even her roommate in Columbia. Like she doesn't fully go there. She kind of tiptoes into it and then she pulls back. And you see her pull back from really looking at this is a lie we're all believing the lie mm-hmm. and you mm. see that echoed too in her therapy session later she's really depressed after jackie dies and she's so mad at carmela and she's so mad at tony and she's so mad about the lie in the family and mm-hmm. she goes to this therapist who's like a cool therapist you know, yeah, that woman who's exactly who you think she is, like with the chunky jewelry and the kind of frizzy hair. And she's just like really convinced that the source of Meadows' problems are probably her father is molesting her or something. Like the therapist who just is projecting, if you know what I mean. It's an interesting scene because the therapist, in so many words, is like, Your dad's in the mafia. And Meadows says, There's no such thing as the mafia. And it's, I think, a word for word recreation of when Tony in the episode College in season one, when she's confronting him in the car on the way to look at colleges, and he says, There's no such thing as the mafia. So she almost has the Fiona Apple VMA speech. And then she decides she doesn't want to go there. She doesn't want to really stick with it. She decides she's going to go back. And I think this is Meadow getting sucked into the family with a capital F. Pulled back in. Right. Because all of season three, she's angry with Tony for his racism. She blames him for Noah breaking up with her. All of that stuff. And for a while, she actually chooses calm over her dad. We should say, though, that even though Meadow never really goes fully towards the light, so to speak, of this is bullshit, she does get very close In a scene that we're going to play some of, after she goes to see the therapist, she announces to Carmel and Tony that she's going to go do a semester abroad in Barcelona. And Mm. Carmela is incensed and Tony's supportive at first, but then is like, no, you're not doing that. And they have this big blowout fight in her bedroom. I think it's really one of the few times that Meadow really looks at the lie of the family 
and not through, oh, dad, I think it's kind of cool that you're in the mafia because all the other kids' dads have boring jobs. You were all in favor of me going. Your mother doesn't want it. Wow. Listen to Mr. Mob Boss. What did you call me? All this fucking pussy footing around years now? Why don't we just get it all out there? Tony. Shut up. Tony! You got something you want to say to me? What do you mean? What do I mean? What do you mean? All these innuendos. You inferring me that I didn't do everything I could to keep that kid from fucking himself up? That, yeah, knowing him and his family, that I didn't try to be a better dad to him than his own dad, God rest his soul, that I didn't try to protect Jackie Jr., that I didn't actually smack him around because I was so frustrated? Is that what you're trying to tell me? I'm through telling people you help with environmental cleanup. That's not what I asked you. Like, you could talk honestly for three fucking seconds. You tried me. I made my plans. I'm going to Europe and I'm getting the fuck out of here. You've been told no. Watch me. Don't do it. I'm warning you, do not do it. I have to say that scene made me miss my dad. Being that age and fighting back, but also being afraid. Mm -hmm. And you can tell that he's a little afraid because I like how Carmela's kind of there to hover and watch, but she's limited in her ability to control him. Everybody is. So Jamie Lynn Sigler is so good at, like you said last time, it's all in her eyes. And she's just like on the edge yeah tony tells carm to shut up and she does say tony but you you see that carm is sidelined a lot in fights with their kids by tony and i also think that carmella knows that what meadow is saying is true you see it on her face you see the regret in Carmela's eyes as she's standing there watching or the shame even. Tony doesn't have that regret or shame. He's going fully into the, it's my way. It's my house. It's my way. But yeah, Jamie Lynn Sigler in this scene, her, her chin is trembling and she looks so afraid. And yeah, I remember having fights like that with my parents too, of just being so angry and screaming more so with my mom actually than my dad as a teenager mm -hmm. yeah same because that's a safer like we always say it's easier to take it out on mom mm -hmm. and it's an interesting triangulation to use a word from psychotherapy where you kind of transfer all of your disappointment and anger at your dad on like Mom, how could you drag us into this family dynamic? How could you put up with his bullshit? Totally. My father had so much shame. You couldn't even fight with him in a satisfying way. Like he would just leave the room or sit with his head in his hands, which was another thing that's like, this isn't fun. Yell back at me, damn it. But I know what you mean watching that scene of I do remember being that age. And I think James Gandolfini and Jamie Lynn Sigler are excellent in that scene. But speaking of Carmela and her being sidelined by Tony, let's talk more about Tony and Carmela's marriage. Yes. One of the strains in Tony and Carmela's marriage, of course, is that he gets to have whores and girlfriends on the side, Gamas. And um, she doesn't have to deal with it because it's a don't ask, don't tell kind of policy. But in this season, Tony meets 
a woman named Gloria in Melfi's office, another patient of Dr. Melfi's. And Gloria, played by Annabella Shioria, is just an incredibly strong character and performance. She plays a woman unquestionably with borderline personality disorder, like her predecessor, Livia, Tony's mother. There's a pattern we learn in her therapy session with Melfi that we see a bit of that she's lying about seeing Tony. Like they hook up very quickly and very passionately and you just know it's going to end bad because she has this anger and he has this anger and it's never going to work out. He's having this affair with her throughout the season and they have some real blowout fights she works at a Mercedes-Benz dealership and she's a different type of woman. We haven't seen Tony with someone that he respects. <laughs> right. But it's true. Tony's past girlfriend before this is a Russian um, woman named Irina. Who's so young, like 20. And who also doesn't take Tony's shit and gets mad at him a lot. But Tony he doesn't respect her. I think Gloria, she works for a fancy car company. Right. She's in her mid-30s. She has her own money and her own place. She wouldn't need to be kept, and she doesn't want to be kept, but she wants him to be hers, and she expects him to be home at 8 o'clock for dinner like when he says he's going to, and LOL, that's not going to happen. He's got stuff to do. Life or death. You start to see Gloria Trillo's um, cool girl facade. She maybe does the cool girl routine. And I think Tony realizes that he's dealing with someone who is unwell in the same way that maybe his own mother was and that he is. And he is afraid in her presence. Yeah. They get into a physical fight. She basically begs him to kill her. And there is a scene where he could strangle her to death and he decides not to. One of the reasons why the fight escalates to such a point is because she says something to him that reminds him a lot of Livia, which is poor you. And it quickly gets super violent and physical. And then Tony's in therapy talking to Melfi and... Melfi gets Tony to connect the dots between Arena and Gloria and the connections between Livia. Let's hear from Matt and Alan. I think when I was reading your book, somebody brought up something like Gloria is meant to represent almost like Livia reincarnated in some ways. And we were talking about how there's the phrase poor you, poor you occurs over and over, usually said by Tony, definitely said by Livia, and I believe is said by Gloria in the one episode. Yeah. And that's what, and when she says it, he's stunned and he says something like, I, you know, I know you, I've known you all my life. And Ooh. he finally realizes like the edible implications of this relationship, right? You know, and there's like the, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but I was struck by the fact that, you know, that episode, uh, Amor Fu. Yeah. But when Melfi uses that term, Tony says Amofo. <laughs> <laughs> Which means motherfucker. Right, right. And that's what's going on. That's the story of Tony's love life, really. It's yeah. A, and, you know, unfortunately, like I, mm. I've heard it said that, uh, and I think it's actually probably true for a lot of people that you're, 
your your love life is defined by whichever parent you had the biggest issues with. Mm -hmm. Uh yeah. It's absolutely true, Antonio. Confirmed. <laughs> That's also it's also really interesting to me how Nancy Marchand dies. But the show continues to be about Tony's relationship to his mother. I think that's really interesting. That's very familiar for a lot of people. Seeing these these cycles repeat, at least the hearkening back to Livia, the entire series, for me, felt very familiar. Because as you said, we, we have these kind of core wounds from our parents that never really heal. And we can try to change or work on them in therapy, but they're still there. Yeah. Um, at least that was my my draw to the show. Looking back on it, 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 it makes sense to me that, you know, I had this conversation with him after season three where everybody was renegotiating their contracts. And I said, so you're, you're going to go back, right? And he said he didn't know that he was. And, it, and he said it was because playing Tony Soprano was so disturbing to him. <laughs> and and uh, Edie Falco was not that way at all. I asked Edie Falco the same question. She's like, nope. Shake I it off. Yeah, she's like, I play the part at five o'clock, we knock off and I go home and I eat a nice meal. You know, like she is a complete, almost like an English actor sort of approach. And But I think Gandolfini, I don't think it's a coincidence that he was pondering not continuing playing this character that he felt was psychically toxic to him. Yeah. He started to have that thought after his son was born. Mm. I don't think that's a coincidence. Right. I don't either. So, Aaron, you know, the whole reason that we're doing these episodes now is because the Many Saints of Newark, which is the prequel movie to The Sopranos, came out in early October. And it's interesting because I won't spoil a, a plot point, but the word motherfucker is discussed in The Many Saints of Newark. And I thought that was an interesting little, little sprinkle from David Chase and Co. Yeah. Remember Gloria. We find out many episodes later that she has committed suicide, or I should say Tony finds out. And he takes it really hard. And he becomes obsessed with this idea that he's a toxic person and that her suicide is his fault. She killed herself over me, which is interesting because, you know, after they have that huge blowout, fight and she throws a stake at him and he almost strangles her and she begs him to kill her. He actually sends one of his henchmen to threaten her life and says, you know, if you ever talk to Tony again, you're dead. So he confronts Melfi about it. He's now admitted that it was Gloria that he was having that affair with. And he's angry at Melfi because she couldn't save her life. And Melfi tries to explain that that's not how it works and that there was no saving her. But he just becomes uh, fixed on it. And I feel like it kind of colors a lot of things that are going to happen, like bad ways that he acts out with others. Tony utters a line, I think he's saying it to Artie, like, that is played for comedy. What am I, some kind of toxic person or something? <laughs> Tony is very self-centered and that sometimes that makes him feel overly responsible for things and other times it makes him completely unable to see himself at all. Well, I'll be introspective for him and say that, yeah, garbage men, 
are toxic. <laughs> he is in the waste management business. Boom. I just loved in this episode, there's just a quick little line like Tony asks his sister Janice, have you ever known anybody that killed themselves? And she goes, Tony, I'm from Seattle. <laughs> of course. <laughs> That's so good. Okay. So in season three, AJ is acting out again. He gets in big trouble at school and he gets expelled. And Tony and Carmela's poor parenting is on full display here. They don't mm -hmm. know what to do with AJ. And I think it's a good example of them not knowing their own son. They don't really understand him that well. And they decide that they're going to help him become a more focused young man by enrolling him in military school. Oof. And it seems like an incredibly bad idea and something yeah. that anyone with a cursory knowledge of AJ would say, that kid's not going to last in military school. But they go as so far as to unroll him. They're having him put on his school uniform, his military academy uniform, to model it. And they're exclaiming over him. And we'll play a little bit of the clip right now. I'm serious. You, you look very impressive. Oh, my God. If I wasn't already married. I look like a total jerk-off. You do not. What, are you crying? I don't want to go there. You need toughening up. Tony. Stand up straight, okay? I'm standing fucking straight! Hey, you'll keep it up, goddammit! This scene is very sad to me because AJ, I think, out of frustration and just kind of heartbreak, just bursts into tears. And then he faints. For me, I feel like this scene in particular is a turning point for his character. I'll keep talking about AJ because he's one of my favorite characters on this mm -hmm. show. But... I think this is when you start to see a little more of his inner workings that come out later on. Okay, season four. We'll talk a little bit about some plot points of season four that we think are important. Notably, Christopher. When we pick back up in season four, Christopher has a blazing heroin addiction. In the last episode, we talked about Christopher and his acting class being vulnerable and having an extreme rage reaction to his own vulnerability. He's one of the characters that we see really struggling with sobriety on the show. Like everybody drinks, everybody smokes, even Tony does coke sometimes. But Christopher really, uh, he gets sucked in and there's a very memorable episode where they have a mob intervention, <laughs> which mm -hmm. is really just funny. But we also see that Christopher is out of control. He beats Adriana all the time, who he claims to love, who would do anything for him. Adriana Laserva, his girlfriend, she wears the hell out of a bandage dress. So beautiful, really into leopard prints, always has a Marlboro light in one hand. She really loves Christopher. And you really see the cycle of abuse play out in their relationship. It's hard because you see it played out in season three, where you've also seen a woman had her head smashed in by someone in a parking lot. The domestic violence in Christopher and Adriana's relationship is casual and it is constant. 
scenes where you think they're just joking around, sort of this like post-coital scene where they're in bed together and they're talking. But essentially she tells Christopher, thinking it's safe, about mm -hmm. a time that she slept with someone before they were together and he hits her in the face. That's right. Later, she tells him that she's not sure she can have children and he gets really angry at her. You knew you were damaged goods? And you didn't tell me until now, like, what's the point of getting married to somebody who's barren? And she's like, we could adopt. And he's like, my blood. It's just, it's so upsetting. But one thing that happens is Christopher, this is so emblematic of him as a person, like gets too high and basically rolls over and passes out on Adriana's poor little dog, Cosette. He sits on her dog and he suffocates the dog and then he beats Adriana very badly when she confronts him. There are a few scenes of intense, prolonged physical violence between him and Adriana and that's one of them. They know they're going to have to do an intervention. And it is funny to see all of these guys talk about hypocrites sitting around telling Christopher that his life has become unmanageable and he needs to get help. But right. it's, it's an interesting scene because what moves Tony the most out of everything? It's not it's not Adriana's black eye. What is it that makes Tony get really upset? Little Cassette. You kill little Cosette. I ought to suffocate you, you little prick. Tony, we're, we're going in order. Sylvia? When I came in to open up one morning, there you were with your head half in the toilet. Your hair was in the toilet water. Disgusting. I told you I had the flu. I said my piece, Chrissy. Great. I can't even defend myself now? No one's attacking you, though, Chris. Look, it doesn't change anything. But I can verify that he was sick for a little while. Still, this thing with the dog. How could you not see it on a chair? You're getting emotional, Tony. That's because I know what it's like to lose a pet. It's completely out of nowhere. And we'll yeah. talk about animals later on, as we said. Christopher's the only person on the show that looks at their issues with substance abuse. And I say looks because he doesn't get sober. <laughs> he struggles with sobriety the whole time. And the the men surrounding him, I think, are both baffled by his desire to be sober and also perhaps jealous of his desire to work on himself or to, quote, do the work. Well, I think we'll think he's weak. You know, yeah. you're weak to become an addict because who would do heroin when you could just drink alcohol, which is socially sanctioned? Um, yep. You're weak to become an addict, but you're also weak to go to AA meetings and sit around talking about the 12 steps. Why don't you just have a drink with us? Right. You know, you see this dance with Christopher, this like very cruel manipulation of him on the show. And it's so sad and mean. And sometimes Christopher can say no and walk away. But most of the time he can't. And he has that drink. Yeah. A big theme of season four is marriage and the relationships between um, men and their wives on the show the ever-evolving breakdown of Carmela and Tony's marriage. It's been building and building and building since episode one in the series when Tony has his panic attack and he goes into the MRI machine and right before he does, Carmela tells him he's going to burn in hell. <laughs> and so, you know, there's tension. But in season four, we learn, I should say Carmela learns firsthand from 
Irina, the first ex-girlfriend, calls her on the phone <laughs> at home and breaks the fourth wall, if you will, and says, I've been stooping your husband. And it leads to a series of confrontations between the two of them where it just gets crazy. Like Edie Falco, holy cow, what an actor, a tour de force, some fight scenes that are so upsetting, like marital fight scenes that aren't physical. They're just in your face, like screaming, nervous breakdown stuff. They're really intense. Yeah, they are really intense. It's an episode called White Caps. There's two huge fight scenes. Um, one where she's like wrapping her head around the fact that, oh my God, I've always sort of known that you had girlfriends, but I never expected it to get so messy that one of them would call our home when our teenage son was at home and could have answered mm -hmm. the phone. How dare you? You're disgusting. Throws him out. You're like, holy shit, you know, this has been building for four seasons. David Chase in the back of the Soprano Sessions tells Matt Nellen that he had wanted Carmela to confront Tony or to walk away from Tony way earlier on in the series, that he felt it never made sense that Carmela, that this didn't come sooner. You can't believe it, that it's finally happening. But there's a scene that I want to play some audio from where... You really see Carmela, I hate this phrase because it's a phrase that's everywhere and doesn't mean anything, but you heard take her power back from Tony, mm -hmm. I think, in this scene. Yeah, it's good. Tony basically is echoing what that therapist told Carmela that, you know, she's complicit. What did you think this marriage was? You chose to look the other way because you wanted to have a nice car and nice clothes and a great walk. What I love about this scene is... That earlier in the episode, Carmela says, you made a fool of me for years. And what did she have that I don't? What do yeah. these women have that I don't? It's that primal girl thing. like It's that primal girl thing of like, what the fuck? What was it about that person yeah. that was it for them? We've all been there. And it's so... Tony throws that back in her face and Tony says, she understood me. And Carmela really calls bullshit on that. Who knew all this time you wanted Tracy and Hepburn? Well, Tony, what about the thousand other fucking pigs you had your dick in over the years? The strippers, the cocktail waitresses. Were you best friends with all of them too? You fucking hypocrite. Receding anger, but also the truth of that statement of like, don't do the these women understood me dance with me. I'm not playing that game with you. It's really good. Yeah, we totally see a different side of her. Just yeah. so raw. So to wrap up this episode, our episode, we're going to talk about one of the episodes in season four that becomes so notorious for the entire season. Joey Pants in real life gets an Emmy for it, the actor who plays Ralphie. But it really brings back full circle what we saw at the beginning of season three with Christopher getting made and learning how he's really never going to be able to get out. 
and that crow, that harbinger of doom. And we really feel that. Earlier in the season, Tony has a very powerful conversation with Christopher where he tells him this. You been drinking? Me and Aid had some wine at the house. Been wanting to talk to you. Yeah. Don't mind to talk to you, too. I'll go first. I gotta make it my number one priority. To limit my exposure to potentially damaging conversations and wiretap shit like that. Sure, guy in your position. So, over the next couple of years, more and more, I'm gonna be giving my orders through you. And then finally, only through you. Oh, what about Sill? You got that with him and Paulie? Those other guys, Sill, Paulie. One thing they're not. They're not my blood. You hear what I'm saying to you? It's a matter of trust. It's very wise. Sill's a good consigliere. He's gonna continue on as such, but he's no fucking spring chicken either. But on the other hand, there's no reason to be giving him a fucking attitude either. No, of course not. And there's going to be a period of transition. <sighs> Jesus Christ, T. You're going to take this family into the 21st century. And we're already in the 21st century, though, T. Whatever you say, T, I'd follow you into the gates of hell. That's what I was going to say to you. What you did for me, that fuck who killed my father. I'll never forget that. I only hope I'm worthy. Why wouldn't you be worthy? Just saying. Tony asks Christopher, who's clearly high on heroin, if he's okay. And Christopher lies and said that he had some wine at home with Adriana. It's sort of an echo of, I think, some of the lying that goes around addiction, too. How many times have you been in a family situation where someone's like a little bit too drunk or a little bit too high or a little bit too angry and everyone just acts like it's not happening? I feel like mm -hmm. that's kind of what Tony's doing here with Christopher, because if he doesn't do that, it means that this kid, his own blood, quote unquote, Carm's cousin, isn't going to be a trustworthy captain in his crew if he's high all the time. That's right. And he sees it because over the next few episodes, we know they end up having the intervention. But the episode we're going to talk about to end our show that we thought was really emblematic of this whole two seasons where these characters go to the point of no return. They are locked in by a number of secrets. They have done things that they can never take back. So in an episode called Whoever Did This, which centers on Ralphie, who, of course, murdered Tracy early in season three at the Bing, we actually get to see him have this change right before this episode where something human happens to him. He is supposed to be watching his son, which we didn't even know he had a little a kid who he's divorced from the kid's mom. So he's having like a visitation day and his kid is playing with a friend outside and they're playing Dungeons and Dragons with real bow and arrows. And a kid accidentally like shoots Ralphie's son in the heart with an arrow. 
And Ralphie is in the bathtub and his maid has to come and get him like something's wrong. Something's wrong. So the kid like ends up in a coma in the hospital. We don't know if he's going to pull through. And Ralphie has this incredible response where he's just full of grief and sorrow and regret. And he goes to a priest. He's saying like, you know, I've done so many horrible things in my life. I, I just, now it, God's going to take it out on my kid and it's not fair. And he goes back to his ex-girlfriend, Jackie Jr.'s mom, Rosalie, who he dumps because he can't handle her neediness and her grief. And he's like, I, I just didn't know. And he asks her to marry him. And she turns him down, but he's quite humbled. And then he goes to Tony because he has to see Tony on the regular and give him his money. And he's distraught and trying to share about his grief. And Tony, like, totally is callous and just, you know, we played like this when we were kids. Like, it's going to be fine. Like, why are you crying? And... Tony's angry with Ralphie. Yeah, and Tony, I think, is resentful of anyone that it makes him feel anything, period. So he feels for Ralphie in this moment for losing his son. But another reason that we haven't talked about yet that he's upset with Ralphie is that on this season, Ralphie gets a horse. He gets a, a race horse. And Tony reveals himself when he goes with Ralphie to meet this horse to be a horse whisperer to this horse named Paiomai <laughs> that really loves Tony. And Paiomai becomes a better racer. And there's a really beautiful closing shot in the episode where Tony meets Paiomai, where he's sitting in the stable with her at night. And it's just the two of them. And there's a goat in the background. And it's very cozy and sort of you know, Jesus in the manger-esque, as Matt and Alan point out in the Soprano sessions. He is so mean to Ralphie, I think, in that moment because Tony loves this horse and suddenly a fire breaks out in the stable and Paiomai is killed and Tony is devastated. Tony thinks that Ralphie set the fire. It just escalates really quickly. And Tony, even after... Ralphie protests and denies it, beats him to death, right? And strangles him and he kills him. It's brutal to watch. It mirrors when Ralphie killed Tracy and he actually says to Ralphie as he's killing him, she was just an innocent creature and you don't know if he's talking about Paiomai or Tracy or some unconscious mix of all of it. Gloria, he might have been talking to himself. And Tony realizes he has to get rid of the body. Who does he call? Nephew Christopher. And he shows up high on heroin. And uh, Tony is kind of fucking with him a little bit because he doesn't, he's like, okay, you have to help me do this thing. I, I came over and Ralphie was dead. So we have to clean up this mess. He never admits to Christopher or confides or say anything about the circumstances. He's just like testing him and being like, you're a made guy. This is a your job now. And they dismember <laughs> Ralphie in a memorable 
away. They cut off his head and his hands and put them in a bowling bag. It's hardcore. And the whole time, Chris is kind of out of it, even though he's doing these brutally horrible things to a human body. Yeah. What you said before, we don't know who the innocent creature is that he's referring to. And I think that he doesn't know either. Doesn't. You know. And that's what narcissism is. It's like self-obsession while not having any self-awareness. It's one of the main themes that underlies Tony's personality, his character. At his core, he is a toxic, there's that word, narcissist. Spoiler alert, it never gets better. As in life, our narcissism just gets more and more intense if you're inability to really connect with other human beings because you're so self-obsessed. So, I mean, that really sums it up. It's just going to get darker and darker from here. I think for an episode that we've devoted talking to about getting sucked into family dysfunction, family cycles, and the ways that lies are gasoline on that flame, like I think that Ralphie's murder and Christopher's involvement with it and the secret that he and Tony now have together around it is the perfect encapsulation of what dysfunction looks like in families. Erin, yep. what are we talking about on the next episode? Next episode, we're going to explore the surprising connection between the sexual dynamics that we see with some of the Sopranos characters. Um, and the renewed interest in the show by the queer and trans community recently, plus the significance of the animal imagery we see throughout the series, the dream sequences, and how a new generation seems to be seeing the show as a commentary on humanity's instinct to destroy itself and our environment. We'll get into the fallout of Tony and Carmela's separation. There's going to be a lot more with Christopher and Adriana. And uh, you won't want to miss it. This is good shit. So tune in next Monday or whenever you can. And, and we want to say happy Halloween. Yes, we do. Happy Halloween, The Sopranos. <laughs> See you next week. You then. Tell me about your father and daddy issues are created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. You can always listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google, and anywhere you get your shows. Follow us at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and Facebook. Subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter that accompanies new episodes at tellmeaboutyourfather.com. And for bonus content, go to patreon.com slash you guessed it, tell me about your father, where for as little as $3, you'll get access to an extra episode of Daddy Issues every month. Oh, and Apple Podcasts is like the New York Times book review of platforms. So if you can, Go there to rate and review us. We'd love to hear what you think.